Well, I do invite you, if you have a Bible, as always, we are in the book of Hebrews, which is in the New Testament, towards the end of the New Testament, and chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. The author of this sermon letter, that's what I've called it, a sermon letter, wants us occupied with Jesus. He wants us occupied with Christ, who is infinitely better than anyone or anything. He wants us to pay attention, to consider Jesus, to fix our eyes on Jesus, to hold fast. To Christ. You, you cannot be too occupied with Jesus. <laughs> you, you can be, we are, too occupied with lots of other things. Almost anything else, almost any other subject, we can just go off and, and become over-occupied with, right? We don't have a right balance. <laughs> this, this is the one subject in person you cannot be too occupied with, to give all your attention to. For in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Paul says. Our author wants us fixed on Jesus. It seems that the congregation, it's kind of like this congregation, the congregation that he is writing to has grown spiritually dull. And they are in danger of turning away, falling away, or turning back, mostly Jewish people he's writing to, turning back to the Old Testament, Old Covenant forms, which would be to entirely miss God's purpose, both in that prior revelation we call the Old Testament. And now, in this revelation in His Son. And so He's exhorting His readers, pay attention, fix your eyes on, hold fast. Because if you neglect, if we neglect this great final word of salvation that God has brought in His Son, there is no escape from God's inevitable and awful judgment. The author grounds his exhortation, this exhortation to fix our eyes on Jesus or to hold fast to Christ. He grounds it by displaying the superiority of Jesus and the salvation he has accomplished and is bringing as our high priest. It's his great theme in this letter. Jesus is better. He's better. That's what he's going to keep showing us. He is better in His person and in His saving work, bringing to fulfillment all that God spoke beforehand, now fulfilled in Jesus. He is the author of a great salvation, a perfect atonement, a certain hope. So take refuge in Him. Don't turn away. It's one of the treats of this letter, the unique aspects of this letter is that we get to see 
in multicolored dimension the magnificence of Jesus. That's what he's going to show us so that we hold fast. Now, in these opening chapters, this first section of his letter, and I think the first section of Hebrews really goes from Hebrews 1, 1 through chapter, almost through all of chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 13 is the first section of this letter. In this first section, these opening chapters, and that's where we're at this morning in chapter 2, the author here, he's, he's inviting us to envision God's people once again gathered at Mount Sinai. Remember that great event in the Old Testament, kind of the apex of God's revelation, Mount Sinai, that awesome display, that terrifying display of God's revelation to envision God's people again at Mount Sinai, and they're receiving this awesome angel-mediated revelation. We call it the law, the old covenant. Envision that, and then to recall that same people who received this awesome revelation, this angel-mediated revelation, to recall their subsequent rebellion in the wilderness, their unbelief and rebellion, and they didn't enter God's rest. That's what he has in view here in these opening chapters. And here's his point. The God who spoke at Sinai has now spoken finally and definitively in His Son. And that Son is vastly superior to the angels who mediated that prior revelation. And He has spoken this great salvation, this final word, this culminating revelation, this great salvation has been spoken in the Son. Therefore, we who have received it, here, here's, his, here's his warrant, here's his admonishment. We must avoid, do, do not imitate that unfaithfulness of Israel. Don't imitate Israel's unfaithfulness, but hold fast to Christ until he ends. That's, that's where he's going in this section. We've received this final word in the Son of all people, the exalted Son, not angels, this great word of salvation. So don't repeat what Israel did in the wilderness in their unbelief and rebellion and failing to enter. Hold fast to this superior revelation in the Son. Hold fast our confession until the end. Enter His rest. That's where he's going in this first section of his letter. Now we're in chapter 2, so we're right in the heart of this first section. And we've seen after, after showing in chapter 1 the superior nature of the Son over angels, the superiority of the exalted Son over the angels. And that's important to his argument because he's saying this final revelation is in the Son. It's not through angels. And so he shows 
the superiority of the exalted son over the angels. After doing that in chapter 1, he then gives his first exhortation in his letter or his sermon. Pay attention. That's his first exhortation. Pay attention. You've got to pay attention to this word that has come in the Son. So let, let me read one more time that exhortation, his first exhortation of the book. It's found chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It'll be on the screen or you can follow it. Just listen to it again. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels, that's Sinai, that great revelation, if that word proved reliable and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also bearing witness with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to to his own will. Pay attention, he says. We must pay attention to what we've heard, to this great salvation. And do, do you hear the, the warning that he mixes in with that? How shall we escape if we neglect this great salvation? They didn't escape under the law. How shall we escape if we neglect this final great word of salvation, the answer, we shall not escape. And we'll see as he goes on what he means by that. Now, this morning we pick it up in verse 5. We're going to keep going now in the chapter. So look there, verse 5, and just notice the first word. I'll put it on the screen in case your version might be a little bit different. But the first word, for. You see it? For. He's going to give additional motivation for not neglecting this great salvation, but paying great attention to it. So he's, he's, he just said that. Pay attention. Don't neglect. For, so he's, he's going to give us additional motivation not to neglect this great salvation. And at the same time, he's going to connect this section back to chapter 1. In his comparison to angels, the son to angels, do you see the first words there? This is the first words in, in Greek, how it reads emphatic. For not to angels, he's still on this theme. Not to angels did he subject the world to come. So he's, he's going to connect us back to chapter 1 in this superiority of the son to angels, especially in his exaltation, that all things are being put under his feet. That's not true of angels. That's true of the Son. And as he does that now, in this section, chapter 5, and it really goes through the end of the chapter, verse 18, he completes the description of the eternal, exalted Son by showing his incarnation and suffering as the means to his exaltation as the perfect Savior. So he's going to expand our vision now of who the Son is. And we want to see that. So let me read. I'm going to read, as I said, starting in verse 5. It really goes through the end of the chapter, but that's way too much for us. We'll just read through verse 9 and consider this rich text here. You can follow in your Bible. For 
Not to angels did he subject the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him a little lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see the one who has been made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone." Here's the question. Who rules the world to come? Who rules the world to come? I think that's a funny question, but that's what he's going at here. I'm just drawing that from verse 5. This is where he's going next in his motivation for us to pay attention. Not to angels did he subject the world to come. So to who? To To whom? <laughs> Did he subject the world to come? Who rules the world to come? Answering that question is the key to understanding the author's point in this text and his transition into describing the Son as the incarnate suffering Son. Who rules? The world to come. Now, verse 5, you look at verse 5. Verse 5 is admittedly a difficult transition. You might read that and say, I don't get the connection. For he did not subject angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. I didn't, I didn't even know we were talking about the world to come. What does he mean? What is he talking about? So it, it is admittedly a, a difficult transition. It may feel like a change of subject, but it's not a change of subject. That's what he's trying to tell you. This is what we've been talking about all along. And I'm going to continue talking about it in relation to angels, (laughs) that the Son is greater. So he hasn't changed subjects. And as I said, that first word, for, he's, he's trying to give us an additional motivations for why we must pay attention. So this question, who rules the world to come, is essential for us to keep paying attention, not to neglect this great salvation. It's a motivation. Now, admittedly, as I said, it may be a little obscure what he's talking about. So let's just, let me try to define what he means by the world to come. I think that will help us connect it to everything he said. Because he, he says, this is what we've been talking about, the world to come. So to understand the world to come, we find our answer in what he's already said. Right? So what does he mean by the world to come? He means the heavenly world in which the Son has been exalted. That's what he means by the the world to come. It's the heavenly world presently in which the Son has been exalted. He's, He's going to refer to this throughout his letter as the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the heavenly most high place. So we'll see it throughout his letter. 
This is the world he's talking about and has been talking about, this heavenly world in which the Son has been exalted to the Father's right hand. And this world will be manifested in the future. It exists, and it will be seen when this present world or present creation is removed. And we'll see this. That's why he calls it the world to come. It's the world about to come. It's this world, the heavenly world, that is on the horizon. That's about to come. Now, he says that's what we've been talking about, concerning which we are speaking. Say, that's what he's been talking about? Yes. He has been talking this whole time about the exaltation of the Son at the Father's right hand in this world. So if you, if you just look back, chapter 1, verse 6, he's going to use the same word here. This is the key. Talking about the Son's exaltation. When the Father says, sit in my right hand, or you are my Son. Verse 6, again, when he brings the firstborn, that's the Son, into the world. Same word. Not talking about this creation. He's talking about that heavenly realm where Christ is exalted. When he brings him into that world, the angels worship him. He has. He's seated him there. So that's the world that we've been talking about, this heavenly world where Christ is seated at the Father's right hand. Again, verse 13 of chapter 1. This is how he concluded that whole section, his key verse. To which of the angels has he ever said, quoting Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The exaltation of the Son at the right hand. By the way, did you notice when we read Acts chapter 2? That was Peter's key verse in preaching the gospel. Same text, Psalm 110, that God has exalted the Son to his right hand. And he is seated there until he puts his enemies under his feet. So that world exists and it's coming. And he didn't say that to angels. He said that to the Son in verse 14. The angels are just ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who are about to inherit salvation. That little word about to come. It's the same word he uses of the world to come. We're coming into our inheritance. So this is, the, this is what he's been talking about all along. This heavenly world, we would say, where Christ is seated, that's our inheritance, that's our salvation, and it's about to come. He's been talking about this all along. So he's asking now, who rules that world? <laughs> who rules this world? That world to come is our salvation in which we inherit. In this letter, the writer of Hebrews, when he talks about salvation, yes, it is an accomplished fact, but it has a future orientation. We're going to inherit salvation. It's the world to come, where Christ is. That will come. That's the reality that's coming. And he's asking, who rules that world? Let me give you the short answer. Don't jump to the answer yet. (laughs) What is the answer? Who rules the world to come? It may surprise you. Here's the answer. Not angels, but a man. A what? 
a man. Not angels, but he's emphatic here. It's not to angels. He never said to angels, sit at my right hand. Angels are just sent out to, to render service for those who are going to inherit this world to come. So who rules? Well, not angels, but a man. Now, isn't that fascinating? We're going to see his answer. He's going to answer by quoting Scripture like he loves to do. He doesn't just, we're, we're anticipating him to say, not angels rule, but the Son does. That's what he's been saying all along. And yes, that's right, but that's not quite what he's getting at. He's going to show us more of who the Son is. So he doesn't simply say the Son, but he answers with Scripture. Do you see it? Look, look there at the text again. Not to angels did he subject the world to come concerning which we are speaking. So, so we want the answer. Well, to who? And then he quotes Scripture. Do you see it? Verse 6. Someone, somewhere, has testified saying. <laughs> Do you love that introduction? It's kind of how we quote the Bible a lot. Doesn't, doesn't the Bible say somewhere about something about like that? Is it because he, he's not quite sure of the reference? No, he knows the reference. That's not how he quotes the Bible. Why does he, why does he introduce it that way? Someone, somewhere. Because he doesn't really care who the human author is. He, he minimizes, he does this all through. He minimizes the human author because his emphasis all along is Scripture is spoken by God. It's God's Word. The human author at some point is irrelevant. <laughs> it's God. He's, it, all through his quotes of Scripture, he ever refers to human authors. It's God speaks. Well, here God is not directly speaking. The psalmist is speaking to God, so he just obscures the human author because he's trying to get the point. This is God's Word. And it is testified, and it has given us the answer to who rules the world. And his answer is quite astonishing. What is man? That's the answer. Man? A man? That's how he answers. In his answer and why he goes at this text from Psalm 8 is not only to show who rules the world to come, but how this man comes to rule, to be exalted. And this point is the important development in describing the Son and the salvation He has brought. This is critical to His whole argument, His letter of showing us who the Son. Not just who rules, but how did this man come to rule? What I'll entitle here, the incarnate suffering Son. That's who. The man the suffering one, comes to rule. Now, as I said, he, he answers that question by using Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, in case you don't know where he's quoting from. That's where he's quoting from. Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. That's the quotation. Again, I said, in my Bible, maybe in yours too, when you see words all in capital letters, that's a quotation from the Old Testament. So that's what he's doing. He's all, it's like he did in chapter 1. He just loves the Scripture. He, the authority is the Scripture. He's going to answer by using the Bible. That's what he does here. And where he goes is Psalm 8. So let's think on his use of Psalm 8 for a moment in showing us the answer to who rules the world. In case you're not familiar with Psalm 8, 
me just give you maybe a one-line summary of Psalm 8. Here it is. Psalm 8 is a poetic reflection of Genesis 1. So it's a poetic reflection of Genesis 1 that describes the majesty of creation and the wonder of man's dominion. Psalm 8, it's that psalm that starts, Oh, Yahweh our Lord, O Lord our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have displayed your splendor above the heavens. And it's a celebration of the majesty of God seen in creation. And the psalmist there is reflecting, I think, on Genesis 1 with Bible open out under the stars or the solar eclipse. Right? See that yesterday? It's one of those wonders. Did you marvel at that? It's marvel. And worship. He's out there and he's considering it. So he's, he's worshiping the majesty of God shown in the grandeur of creation. And he's, as he beholds it, things like solar eclipse or the stars and the, the galaxy that he's beholding, he, he senses his own smallness, his insignificance. And he says, what is man? What is man that you even take thought of it, that you even notice him? What is man that you remember him, that he comes to your mind, or the son of man that you care for him? So he's overwhelmed with a sense of his smallness and insignificant. And yet with Bible open in Genesis 1, what is man? And he celebrates, in Psalm 8, the unique place of man, humanity, in God's marvelous creation. What is man? You have made him a little lower than Elohim. That's the word. A little lower than Elohim. Now, you could translate that a little lower than God, Elohim. It's the plural form, but it's often just translated God. Or you could translate that heavenly beings, the plural. Angels. Both would be correct because to be made a little lower than God, reflecting on being made in the image of God, that's who man is. Or, in the sense of his grandeur, a little lower than these Majestic heavenly beings. And it's a, it's a way of emphasizing the dignity of humanity, of human beings. We seem like a speck in the universe. Do you ever feel that smallness? And he's saying, but no. We're created, yes, in the image of God, we're created probably best a little lower than angels. It's who man is, and you've crowned him with glory and honor, and you've put all things in subjection under his feet. Who is man? Well, not only made a little lower than angels, but you have given man dominion over all of creation. Rule. Remember, we looked at this, this spring in Genesis and the creation of man and woman in the image of God and that mandate to rule over. So that's what he's, that's what he's celebrating in Psalm 8. Eight. How does our author read the psalm? How does he read it? 
Note this, second note. This dominion entrusted to man has been fulfilled more comprehensively by the man, Jesus. That's how he reads it. That's how you have to read it. That dominion, putting all things under his feet, that was entrusted to Adam, to mankind, has been fulfilled more comprehensively by the man, Jesus. The man, Jesus. That's why our author here, he begins his quotation of Psalm 8 there with that phrase, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? He begins it there to assert Jesus' humanity. This eternal, exalted Son is human. (laughs) He hasn't said that yet. He's human. He's the man here. So Psalm 8, according to Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, speaks more exactly, more specifically about Jesus. As you read that psalm in your translation, if your translation left it, kind of like the original, you see the word him. Don't you throughout that? You've made him lower. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You put all things in subjection under his feet. And we're asking, who's the him? (laughs) Is that Adam? Is that mankind? Or is that Jesus? Well, in some sense, it's both, right? It is first given to Adam, to mankind, but the author sees it as Jesus. It's more specifically about Jesus. So that Psalm 8 is actually prophetic of this dominion of the Son of Man. That's who it is. So that Adam, or we could say, Man, humanity, in our dominion over creation that God has given to us, that dominion is only a type of the greater, more comprehensive rule of the man Jesus over the world to come. Remember his question, who rules the world to come? He's not thinking just who rules present creation, who rules the world to come. In Psalm 8, he's reading prophetically, as man was given this dominion, so it speaks more of the dominion of Jesus over everything, the world to come. That's how he reads it. And so he emphasizes it. Look at verse 8 again, right in the middle, after saying, he put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Just comprehensive. He's talking about the the reign of the man Jesus. Everything, the world to come, is subjected to him. So that, why does the author go here to this psalm? We're going to see, he's highlighting the humanity of Jesus and his reign. And Psalm 8 now helps interpret Psalm 110, his favorite verse. Verse 1, so so make the connection. That's why he's talking about the same thing here. So remember his key verse, look back at chapter 1, verse 13, when he quotes Psalm 110. This is what 
the father said to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You hear the language. His enemies are going to be put under his feet. And Psalm 8 says, he put all things under his feet. So those two passages interpret each other. How you read it? They go together. Who is this son whom God said, sit at my right hand and I'll put your enemies under your feet? Well, it's the man of Psalm 8. And he puts everything under his feet. Now, there's a tension here. Because Psalm 8 views this subjecting of all things to him as a completed fact, right? A completed action. He put all things under his feet. Psalm 110 has this future. He is putting all things. He's sitting until he puts his enemies. It's not yet accomplished. So how's the author handle this? Well, listen to what he says next in verse 8. After saying, in subjecting all things, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But here, here's, here's how he explains it. But now, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. What's he talking about? Last note here, under this use of Psalm 8. The visible manifestation of this subjection is still future. It's the until. So that's what he's saying. Right now, we don't see all things subjected to him. And I think to him here is Jesus, the man. Not just mankind or Adam, because he says we don't yet see all things. It's, he's, we're going to see it. <laughs> so the son has been exalted, is sitting at the father's right hand, putting all things under his feet. He has that reign, that position, but we don't yet see it manifested visibly yet. It's true, it's here, but it's still coming. That's how he understands it, and, and it's so true. Today, the world continues in rebellion to God, opposing God. There are enemies. That is, those who oppose God, those who spurn God, those who neglect Him. We're, we, we are presently in the, the world of Psalm 2. If you remember, he quoted that psalm earlier about the nations are raging against God and against His Messiah. We still live there. There are still enemies. There's still opposition to the reign of Christ. There's still opposition to God. People are oblivious to this great reality that God has seated His Son at His right hand. And that's what Psalm 2 goes on to say. God's not threatened by enemies. Why? Because I've installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain, His Son. That's happened. But so many are oblivious. But it's coming. That's why He says we do not yet see all things subjected to him. We will see it. 
He is reigning right now. He is seated. God is putting enemies under His feet. There's coming a day when it will be manifested. But here's the good news right now. This until time, until He puts all enemies, currently God is transforming enemies into sons and daughters. Right? We, we were enemies. We were hostile to God. And He's rescuing enemies. He's reconciling enemies right now. That's open to us to gladly submit to King Jesus. So, enjoy that. Don't be found an enemy. Don't be found in opposition or neglecting this king because the day is coming when he will put all enemies under his feet in judgment. Now, we don't presently see all things subjected to him. What do we see? What do we see? Look at verse 9. I'm going to put it up again, verse 9. But we do see, here, we don't see all things, but what do we? We do see the one who has been made for a little while lower than angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What do we see? We see Jesus. First time he uses his name, Jesus, in the letter. Now, this is a treat for us, verse 9, because verse 9, our author interprets Psalm 8. Remember, this is a sermon. He's expositing the Bible like he should do in sermons. And so he's not just quoting it and leaving us to wonder, how's that connect? He's going to interpret it for us. In case you don't know how to read Psalm 8, he tells us how to read Psalm 8. So, so look, I got it on the screen there. I want you to look there and see what he does here. He's going to paraphrase two clauses from Psalm 8. And I put them in italics. Do you see them? He says, literally, but the one who has been made for a little while lower than the angels. So that comes right out of Psalm 8. See that? And then... Namely, Jesus, because of the suffering of death. Here's the other phrase, crowned with glory and honor. That comes out of Psalm 8. So he's paraphrasing those two things from Psalm 8. And then in between, he puts these words in between. See the words in between those two clauses? That's the key. That's the key to interpreting Psalm 8. The one who was made for a little while lower than angels, we see. Who's that? Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. So what does he show us? Let me, let me finish just quickly with these three truths about Jesus from Psalm 8 that he sees, he wants us to see. Here's the three truths. Number one, his incarnation. His incarnation. That is, that phrase 
the one who was made a little lower than angels, refers to the incarnation of Jesus becoming man. That's what it refers to. That's what he's saying. (laughs) Now, I'm using incarnation. The writer of Hebrews doesn't use that language. I'm borrowing that language from the Gospel of John, such such a good word. That's John's language when he talks about this word, the Son, the eternal Son becoming flesh or taking on flesh, the infleshing. It's just from Latin word carne, flesh, the infleshing. So we're talking about Jesus becoming man, taking a human nature. But notice how he describes it. He's using Psalm 8. He was made a little lower than the angels. The eternal Son that we read about in chapter 1. The eternal Son, the one who made the angels, the, the one who made all things. The eternal Son, the one who is the radiance of God's glory. The one who is upholding all things by the word of His power. That one was made a little lower than angels. Take it in. That's His humiliation. He takes to himself a human nature. Now, he's going to explain this more. Just glance down at verse 14 of chapter 2, and you'll see he's going to come back to this because it's so important. He says it like this, since the children, and he's referring to us as believers, share in flesh and blood, that's that human nature, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That's the incarnation. But for Christ, for the eternal Son, what a humiliation. Now, there's the irony. Psalm 8, originally, the psalm is celebrating the dignity of man as being made a little lower than the angels or a little lower than Elohim. But for the eternal Son, it's a great humiliation. The eternal Creator, Son, lower than the angels, His abasement. He will live in the weakness and limitations of this human nature. Truly as a man. He is the man Christ Jesus. It's stunning. So we learn His incarnation. Second, His exaltation. This has been the great theme here in these opening chapters, but here we see it again. His exaltation, notice Jesus, right in the middle of the verse, because of the suffering death, crowned with glory and honor. So that crowning with glory and honor from Psalm 8 refers ultimately to the exaltation of Jesus or His rule, putting all things under His feet, ultimately. He is crowned with glory and honor. The one who is made a little lower, and some of your versions might say a little while lower, could be temporal, could be a combination. He's made a little lower for a little while. I think it's mostly referring to his human humiliation, that he's made lower than the angels, but then crowned with glory and honor, his exaltation. But notice again what the author puts in the middle there. That's all important. Do you see it? Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. That is, on account of 
on account of. His exaltation is on account of his suffering of death. His exaltation is on account of that. This is what he's trying to drive to. This exalted son, right? This one who has taken his seat as the son has done so on the basis of his suffering so that he's exalted as the Savior. It's because of his suffering that he's crowned with glory and honor. This is all through the New Testament. Suffering, then glory. Paul, another author in another place in the book of Philippians, echoes really the same idea, speaking of Jesus, that he did not recall regard equality with God, something to be clung to, but emptied himself. It's his incarnation. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, a bondservant, becoming in obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That's here. It's because of his suffering that he's crowned Third thing, he tells us his purpose. His purpose for all of this, for being made lower than the angels, submitting to the suffering of death. What's his purpose? Do you see it? At the end of verse 9, it's how he ends. So that, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So that, here's the purpose of all of this, that he might taste death by the grace of God. This is God's grace that gives his son to taste death for everyone. What a vivid description there of the purpose of Jesus' incarnation, his humiliation, his suffering, was that he might taste death for us. To taste death. You hear it? The full experience of death with its bitterness and suffering. He was not exempted from it. He tasted it. But notice, for whom? For us, for everyone, he says. That is, what we're going to learn throughout this book is that this death, this death was a substitutionary death to deliver us from death as God's judgment. That's what he's going to go on to explain. When he tasted death for us, we'll see the rest of it, it means he will experience death as the judgment of God for us. He will bear the weight of the penalty of our sin in His death so that we will not taste death like this. We will not experience death as the judgment of God, but as victory, as victory over death because He tasted death for us. That's the point of his humiliation. So, so who is it that rules the world to come? It's the incarnate 
suffering, exalted man, Christ Jesus, the eternal Son and the Son of Man for us. Do you see Him? Do you see Jesus this morning? Verse 9, he says, we see Jesus. We see Him as the one made lower than the angels. We see Him as the one who suffered death. We see Him as the one crowned with glory and honor. Do you see Him? Do you? Do you see Him like that for you? With the eyes of faith this morning. Oh yes, we don't presently see all things subjected to Him. So much unbelief in the world. So much goes on as if God does not exist. If this, these realities are not true. Do you see Him? Have you beheld Him as the man Christ Jesus who has tasted death for you and now crowned with glory and honor and will bring you to glory? Is that your hope? Are you seeing him, Christian? Are you paying attention? Are you beholding him? Are you occupied with him? Oh, may God give us eyes to see this morning. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, this is all by your grace. This great salvation in a great Savior who was made lower than angels for us, that he might taste death for us and might bring us to glory. Open our eyes to see him. Even if there are those here who have not seen him as their savior, that right now you would open their eyes, the eyes of faith, to embrace Jesus. Thank you for this precious gift. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.